0: Professor of Photography, Jeff Kurto, and welcome to class session number 10 of History of Photography. This class session looks at machinery, it looks at technology, it looks at different types of cameras and explores whether or not the machine influences the photographer or the photographer influences the machine. Large format cameras and small format cameras is our topic for this week. Here we are joining our class in progress slow cameras and straight pictures and fast cameras and fast pictures. So we've talked around this semester, we've talked around a couple of different things and, you know, about sizes of cameras and types of cameras and equipment and so forth, but we really haven't spent any time talking about how the machine changes the way a photographer might use the medium of photography. So uh, what we're aiming at today is to kind of look at uh, big cameras and small cameras and see what that transition from the large format cameras of the 19th and early 20th century to the smaller format cameras of the early 20th to the late 20th century, what that did to photography. So slow cameras and straight pictures and fast cameras and fast pictures. So we'll remember, you know, William Henry Jackson here out in the, middle of the the wilds of the American West with his 20 by 24 inch view camera making a negative as big as this sort of empty space there. So uh, the idea that these cameras needed to produce negatives that large in order to make pictures that were as big as they wanted to make them. You wanted to make a 20 by 24 inch picture, you had to make a 20 by 24 inch negative. No way around it because there wasn't sufficient speed in the printing papers to enlarge negatives. And of course, there wasn't electricity in the early part of the 19th century either. So large cameras were the order of the day. Uh, And uh, large cameras were the order of the day, but it wasn't really very many people who would use a camera like this one, the mammoth camera. The mammoth camera. uh, It was an invention of George R. Lawrence, uh, Lawrence sought the assistance of a local inventor, Anderson, J.A. Anderson. And within eight months, they designed and built this thing that they called the Big Camera. It weighed 1,400 pounds. It required 15 people to operate. The bellows extended 27 feet on steel tracks. Uh, the, uh, uh, and the lenses were the, reported to be the largest ever created for uh, photographic work. It was a telescopic lens. Uh, 11 feet in equivalent focus. So if you think about our millimeters of lenses, this is an 11-foot focal length. 11-foot focal length. Kind of crazy, right? So the uh, plate holder created eight by four and a half foot negatives, Uh, three times the print size of existing panoramic cameras. Some other features of the camera included light proof uh, curtains, which resembled window shades, which protected the negative both before and after exposure. The camera could be adjusted for either uh, vertical pictures or horizontal pictures. uh, And the large photographic plate created for it was uh, made by the Kramer Dry Plate Company. So it was not a wet plate collodion process, but dry glass plates. Um, A reporter wrote, owing to the dimensions required, it was necessary to provide a new apparatus to create the dry glass plates. A great marble slab larger than the plate was the first requisite. Upon this, plate, upon this, the plate is resting while the coating is being applied. Large pieces of ice beneath the slab kept it at a temperature that would cool the emulsion rapidly as it was applied. Uh, so the negative plates cost about $1,800 per dozen, so it was not an inexpensive thing to operate. Uh, but uh, it was uh, uh, possible with this to make photographs that were on a scale unlike anything <coughs> anybody had ever seen before. Uh, their uh, uh, their motto, the company's motto was, the hitherto impossible in photography is our specialty. So <clears throat> uh, big cameras, because of the limitations of the way in which photography uh, had some technical problems. Um, So following on from that, we saw that Alfred Stieglitz and other photographers began to use smaller handheld cameras. Smaller handheld cameras. So when we think of a a handheld camera, we're thinking, uh, and it's probably where I did look for my phone last week, we're thinking about a small handheld camera that is very small, pocketable. In Stieglitz's era, this would have been a camera about yay big, so not something you could put in your pocket, but it was something that was designed to be held in the hand as opposed to set on a tripod or some other kind of studio stand. And it also featured something called reflex viewing. This is a little viewing hood that you would look down into and you would see the image as it was reflected on a big mirror inside the camera. That mirror would flop up, or in this case, I think, down. Uh, prior to the exposure being made so that the picture could be made and then the, when you cranked the camera to a new exposure, the, uh, the the mirror would flop back up. So the idea of reflex viewing was something that was pretty revolutionary. View cameras, large format cameras, had this disadvantage and the disadvantage was that once you put a plate holder in the back of the camera, you couldn't see the picture anymore. You couldn't see what you were about to photograph because the viewing system was then replaced by the holder for the plate. So with this kind of camera, you could see the picture just up until the moment of exposure, just like you can with your DSLR cameras. So there is this advantage that these cameras had, uh, not only in terms of reflex viewing, but also in terms of the fact that with these kinds of handheld cameras, photographers like Stieglitz could begin to roam the world and make photographs of things that were happening at the moment. So there was something different about that. So cameras begin to get smaller. Well, they didn't get really that small except for this one, the Doppelsport bird cam. Uh, this was about 1907. Um, and uh, it, in fact, was a camera that was designed to be strapped to the <laughs> chest of a homing pigeon so that the pigeon could be made to go fly out somewhere. And what would happen was, over a period of time, um, the, uh, the, the camera would shoot X number of pictures on a small roll of film, and it had a kind of mechanical advance thing that would advance the film and get more pictures. Uh, And uh, here is, this is about as big as I've ever been able to find this picture. Apparently the quality wasn't that great, but this one is like one of the ones, I've only seen maybe a dozen pictures from this camera, uh, but this one's one that just kind of knocks me out because you can see the wingtips of the bird on either side. But... You know, obviously, you didn't have a ton of control over what it was that you were photographing. Um, You know, you could only sort of just guess at what the bird is going to fly over until they come back home. Uh, So, but there is this desire to have cameras get smaller, and the smaller camera obviously is going to produce slightly lesser quality, but uh, now we have the capability of putting the camera uh, up in the air. Uh, Then there's also the Russian KGB spy camera in a ring, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, James Bond type, type technology where, you know, you might go to adjust your ring and actually be making a photograph, the lens and the, and the thing that looks like where the stone might be. So there is this idea that what they were looking for was the ability to make cameras that had uh, smaller profiles that could be snuck into different places, that could be placed in different places, that didn't have the cumbersome quality of large cameras that had been in use. And we've already talked a little bit about the Minigraph and its use of roll film as a sort of motion picture exposure testing device, and then the role of this guy, Oscar Barnack, uh, in creating the Leica camera, uh, this small format camera uh, that uh, Barnack kind of was was the, the chief engineer on. Um, He worked for the Lights Optical Company, a company that had made uh, microscopes since the middle of the 1840s. And Barnack wanted the company to move away from traditional heavy plate cameras and look for a completely new form of photographic technology. And he had the idea of something like the Leica as early as 1905, the idea of reducing the negative format to a very small format uh, and then enlarging the photographs at a later time. Obviously, much easier to do post-electricity, right? Because now they had the ability of controllable, enlarging light. Exposures for uh, the printing paper got shorter as the printing paper got better. Uh, so uh, Barnack took all of this stuff and uh, began to explore the idea of this camera that his lights optical company could produce. And the first Leica entered production in 1924, introduced to the public in 1925. And the word Leica is a contraction of Light's optical company camera, Leica. So it's a contraction word, uh, and that's where it comes from. And of course, Leica has been, uh, ever since its introduction, one of the more important photographic brands uh, of all time. So then we have... uh, so now that we've sort of arrived at small format cameras, let's take a look at some small format camera photographers and uh, see if we can kind of look at what they, what they do. But before we get there, let's ask a, a question about small format cameras versus larger format cameras. I'll send the sign-in sheet around, too. Got a little bent, so sorry about that. It's a new sign-in sheet, because we filled up the old one. So as compared to these large format cameras that had been the primary method of making photographs up until the 1920s when uh, the Leica and other cameras like it began to appear on the marketplace, you know, why would a small format camera be attractive to anybody? F-stops. F-stops, tell me more. Uh, more pictures. More pictures, more pictures. F-stops would probably be equivalent format to format to format. But more pictures is something that's significant because a camera like this or like this or like this has a roll of film in it rather than individual single plates, whether it's wet plate collodion or dry glass plates. So increased output is one. Any other reasons? Less obtrusive. Less obtrusive. Portable. Portable. Portable, easy to carry around. I mean, compared to that Mammoth camera we saw a few minutes ago, obviously something that is small enough to fit in a, you know, small bag is is a really handy device. Conceal it under your coat until the last possible second. So less obtrusive is another part of it. Anything else? Small cameras? Advantages? Reduced cost. Reduced cost. Relatively speaking, reduced cost probably mostly reduced cost for the materials, the consumables inside the camera, the film, right? So instead of having large pieces of film, a small roll of film is much less square inches relative to the number of pictures that can be made. So a little bit more economical in terms of picture-per-picture cost. So... So let's take a look at some of uh, the photographers who used these small-format cameras and see if we can kind of arrive at any conclusions about you know, who they were and what they were up to. Uh, and it's probably most logical to start with uh, the, the, probably the, the acknowledged supreme master of the 35-millimeter camera, uh, one of the first people to take up the Leica as a camera that he was using as a professional device. Um, and his first cameras were, in fact, Leica's, uh, was Cartier-Bresson, Henri Cartier-Bresson, who coined a phrase, the decisive moment, the decisive moment, because for Cartier-Bresson, it was the moment at which all of the elements in the frame kind of came into some sort of harmony. That might have to do with where the camera is placed, but it might have an equal amount to do with what's in the frame. How does the frame look? What's happening within that frame? What's going on within that frame? So the decisive moment um, is Cartier-Bresson's sort of uh, reason for being. He considered the camera uh, as an extension of his eye. And he really didn't think about the camera as being a separate entity. The camera was an extension of what he saw. Cartier-Bresson is very interesting to me and for a lot of different reasons. One is that when we look at the photographs, we think, oh, well, here's a guy who's in the right place at the right time. But really what we're looking at is a guy who's in the right place just a little bit before the right time, right? He's able to be in that moment at the threshold of the moment, sort of waiting for the moment to happen. Another thing that's interesting about Cartier-Bresson and other photographers using small format equipment is that one of the things that happens is we don't see all of the stuff that happened before and after the individual exposures we have. So when we look back to Carlton Watkins or, uh, or any one of those, you know, Francis Frith or any one of the 19th century photographers who were photographing with large format cameras, 20 by 24, 16 by 20, even 11 by 14. What they were about was making a picture that represented that thing, moment, place, whatever, as best as it could. And they weren't likely to make 10. Whereas a photographer like Cartier-Bresson might make 15 or 20 pictures at a given place that he thought had some merit as an interesting photographic composition. He was a news photographer, predominantly, making photographs for publication and thinking through the idea of how these photographs could tell a story. So, um, and the other thing that's really interesting about Bresson is not only did he think of the camera as an extension of his eye, but he also acted on that idea. So when Bresson, as people who knew him, said uh, that when they were talking with him, it was a very uh, kind of disconcerting thing because he'd always be kind of moving himself around a little bit to kind of, you know, improve the composition of you with the background or, you know, whatever else was in the, in the scene. And people who knew him while he was photographing saw him do things like as the sun uh, was covered by a cloud momentarily, he'd just instinctively reach down and slow the shutter speed Uh, down a little bit because he understood without having to think through the process of doing a light meter reading or any of those kinds of things that oh well it's a little bit darker and as he moved closer to a subject he'd instinctively turn the focus ring and you can kind of see that in practice in this left hand image because where is the plane of focus it's like right on the kid and you can tell that this is a shot that he just like raises the camera at the last possible second to get the picture it's a terrific photograph. Uh, it's a little off-kilter, you know, we might like it if the kid's feet were in the frame, but where is the plane of focus and how quickly does it fall off behind the child and how important was that exact plane of focus and how did he get that in such a fraction of a second many decades before autofocus appeared. So what, there is What kind no... of f-stops were available on cameras back then? So this would probably be an f F two or F F one point eight, you know, fairly fairly fast exposures, or fa- fairly fast lenses, you know. So I mean, did they had the full range all the way up to an F twenty two. Sure, sure, absolutely. But you can see that this isn't an F twenty two picture. This F22. is like an F two picture, right? Yeah. You know, an F three point five maybe. Uh, but you can see that the I mean, the building is out of focus. The kids behind her, obviously, mm-hmm. quite yeah, a bit out of focus. In full stride, so. So, and of course, much has been talked about um, and written about this photograph. So much going on in the frame. You know, the guy sort of hovering forever just above the water. We don't know whether he's going to get wet up to his ankle or wet up to his waist or or worse. Um, And his pose kind of intriguingly mirroring this pose of this uh, poster for a dance performance back in the background. And whether Bresson was thinking about that stuff or composing these things, Uh, sort of on the fly is is hard to know, but, boy, it's really pretty fascinating to watch uh, how it is that that he's looking at the composition, not just about the moment, but also about all the other elements in the frame as well. So there's a lot going on here. So another uh, 35-millimeter photographer is W. Eugene Smith. So Smith was a Life magazine photographer, Um, and uh, really kind of not only the master of the photo essay, but almost like the originator of the photo essay. Uh, If uh, Cartier-Bresson's camera was an extension of his eye, uh, Smith's camera is an extension of his conscience. He's really, really sort of directed toward trying to do good with his camera. So it's probably a good spot to sort of pause briefly and talk about Life magazine. So here is the beginning of a spread of a picture story in Life magazine called Country Doctor. Uh, It was published in in September of 1948 uh, and it's about a guy who would make house calls out in the countryside uh, as, you know, sort of talking about this as a beginning to die off kind of breed of of doctors who uh, served rural populations and went to people's homes. So, Life Magazine was an important periodical in America for many, many, many years. And it's important, especially for the people in the the room who don't know Life Magazine prior to, say, 1970 or so, to kind of have an understanding of what Life Magazine was about. Life Magazine, a weekly publication, would arrive in people's mailboxes all across the United States, and when it did, you suddenly opened a window onto a world that you didn't know about before. It was as if you were suddenly able to transport yourself to these other cultures, other locations, and learn about them in picture format. It was the first magazine to use photographs far more than words. It used a brief introductory bit and small captions for each image but the majority of the content of its stories was photographs. And for, uh, you know, for those of you who've grown up in the internet world, uh, this is a pretty remarkable deal because there was no kind of reporting of this depth or quality anywhere. Even television didn't really give this kind of depth of coverage to news stories or to other cultures, so this was a very important publication that sort of died off in the 1970s, came back a little bit uh, in the 1980s or 90s as a kind of glorified People magazine, uh, and you know now uh, you know they do special editions, but that's about it, right? So what Smith did was he kind of backed into his role as in a way as a photographer at at Life Magazine, uh, he started out really just sort of as a, a gopher in the, in the magazine's offices, doing a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and eventually started to make photographs, and people recognized that he was a, a, a pretty talented photographer. And eventually, he rose to the point where he was their main photographer and to the point where he would be able to dictate to the publishers of the magazine and the editors of the magazine what stories they should run, how big the pictures should be, what the sequence of the images should be, something that would never happen in today's publication world, where if any of you have ever had any pictures published, you're just happy that they're published, let alone that you've got any kind of control over what picture goes first and how big the picture is played on the page, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So Smith began to do these photo essays. And the interesting thing about Smith was that he had apparently a kind of chameleon-like ability to blend into his surroundings. And apparently one of the ways that he was able to do this was he would spend quite a lot of time, much more time than a contemporary photojournalist might spend on a story. He'd spend weeks in a place. And first just go there and not make any photographs, and after being there a day or two, he'd maybe make 10 photographs, and then the next day maybe 30, and then the next day 130. And kind of continue to uh, sort of be in that space so that people became comfortable with him being in the space. So what we get are these incredibly intimate photographs, photographs that don't really look like somebody who's coming from the outside to report on another culture. So in this particular image, one of Smith's uh, best known uh, was made, uh, made while he was doing a story about a small fishing village in Japan called Minamata, and in this fishing village in Japan, uh, the local industry was dumping hundreds of gallons a day of mercury into the water, and as that mercury went into the water, it, of course, went out into the ecosystem and began to contaminate the fish that people were eating, and, of course, it was primarily a fish uh, culture that most most of this food that they ate was fish, so people began to get mercury poisoning and uh, so births were happening like this one where there was extreme deformity caused by this mercury poisoning. And Smith went to uh, photograph this and document this problem. So when we think about photography as an extension of the conscience, uh, he's really trying to do good with the camera. In fact, so much so uh, that once uh, the proprietors of the factory that was doing the dumping Uh, caught wind of the fact that he was uh, he was there making these photographs Uh, they sent a a group of of, uh, thugs out uh, to beat him up and they beat him up so badly that he was hospitalized for months so uh, the idea that that he's in the face of things that are happening that that people uh, people want to keep quiet about but he's trying to help put them out into the world so war photography You know, think about where the camera is relative to the subject and about how he's really putting the subject in our space by putting himself in their space. The other thing that's interesting and that you might have noticed in the previous photograph, we'll actually back up to it, um, is that the photographs kind of have an unearthly technical quality about them. Like there's somehow... No possible way that that kind of arrangement of light and dark would actually exist in the world. Smith was a master darkroom technician. Cartier-Bresson, on the other hand, had no interest in the darkroom. (coughs) He just wanted to make the photographs and let somebody else do all of that stuff. Smith was very interested in going into the darkroom and making certain areas of the image very, very dark, using bleach to bleach out areas that he wanted to keep as lighter things. And you can see it happening in this picture of the... Uh, Burial at Sea, where there are some highlight values here that seem a little improbable relative to where they are in the lighting scheme of the photograph. And yet Smith is using all of the sort of tricks of the trade of the darkroom to bring these images to fruition and make them look exactly the way he wanted to. So his is a process of not only working in the field, but also working in the darkroom, whereas Cartier-Bresson's photographic process is just exclusively in the field. They weren't all hard-hitting photographs, yeah, like the one on the right here. Albert Schweitzer on the left. Another uh, 35 millimeter photographer is Robert Capa, uh, a preeminent war photographer whose uh, most famous statement is the very uh, sort of machismo-filled, if your pictures aren't good enough, it's because you aren't close enough. So the whole idea of being in the space, being uh, in, the, in the, the sort of line of fire, as it were. So uh, Kappa went ashore with uh, uh, soldiers as they stormed the beaches in Normandy on D-Day. So here he is running, a, running ashore, running through the water with them, uh, bullets flying around his head, uh, really you know powerful pictures. There's some really interesting and you know, like there's at least 10 different versions of this story and I, I, I'll just sort of paraphrase one of them, that the reason this picture looks like it looks, kind of grainy and so forth, is that uh, Kappa would be sending his rolls of film back to a ship and whoever was processing the film on the ship made a mistake and put it in uh, the wrong chemical first and recognize their mistake tried to salvage it, and only a few frames on the roll were salvageable, Uh, and in the process, they ended up being super grainy and uh, kind of crunchy-looking like this, which in some ways adds to the quality of what it is that the pictures are about. And then probably uh, 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 Capa's best-known photograph made during the Spanish Civil War, Uh, and uh, probably the best thing to do is to let Capa tell you about it himself it happened in
1: spain it was very much at the beginning of my career as a photographer and very much at the beginning of the spanish civil war and war was kind of romantic if you can see anything like that no i can't it was there because it was in andalusia and those people were very green. they were not soldiers and They were dying every minute with uh, great gestures, and uh, I figured that was really for liberty in the right kind of fight. that were tools. And I was there in the trench with about 20 milicianos, and those 20 milicianos had 20 old rifles. And on the other hill facing us was a Franco machine gun. So my I was shooting in the direction of the machine gun for five minutes and then stood up and said, the vamanos, get up from the trench and began to go after the machine gun. Shooting that the machine gun wasn't up and moved them down. So what was left of them came back and again take pictures in the direction of the machine gun, which certainly was clever enough not to answer. And after five minutes again, I said vamanos, and they were moved on again. This thing repeated itself about three or four times. So the fourth time, I just kind of put my camera above my head and even didn't let me flip the picture when they moved over the trench. And that was all. I didn't develop my pictures there. And I sent my pictures back with lots of other pictures, what I took. I stayed in Spain for three months. And when I came back, I was a very famous photographer because that camera which I hold above my head just caught a man at the moment when he was shot. So so that that was, was a great picture. That was probably the best picture ever took. And, well, and then I saw the picture in
0: the frame because the camera was far above my head. Sort of a fascinating story that, you know, just putting the camera up and pressing the button at, at approximately the right moment or what you think is the right moment turns into being exactly the right moment. Now, what's also interesting about this photograph is that even though we just heard the photographer, Kappa, talking about this uh, this experience of making this photograph, many people have suggested that this photograph was staged, that it wasn't true, that it's not real, that somebody was actually set up to you know run down the hill and pretend to fall down as opposed to being shot. And much research has gone into trying to disprove that it's a real photograph. So, you know, which side of the history do you believe? Do you believe the photographer describing the event, or do you believe uh, the the researchers who have tried to figure out, uh, could there possibly have been a camera in that position at that particular time, and during that particular, you know, skirmish of of the Spanish Civil War? So, uh, regardless, uh, CAPA has uh, had a, a career Uh, that was all about making us feel like we were there, like we were in the experience of uh, being in that event. Uh, And it was almost always about conflict. Another interesting aspect about CAPA uh, is this, uh, often referred to as the Mexican suitcase. In late December of 2007, three small cardboard boxes arrived at the International Center of Photography from Mexico City after a long and mysterious journey. These tattered boxes, previously known as the Mexican suitcase, contained the legendary Spanish Civil War negatives of Robert Capa. Rumors had circulated for years for the, uh, regarding the survival of those negatives, which had disappeared from Capa's Paris studio at the beginning of World War II. Cornell Capa, Robert's brother and the founder of the International Center for Photography in New York City, uh, had diligently tracked down each story and vigorously sought out the negatives, but to no avail. Uh, When at last the boxes were opened uh, for the 89-year-old Cornell Kappa, the brother of Robert Kappa, they revealed 126 rolls of film, not only by Robert Kappa, but also by Gerda Taro and David Seymour, uh, usually referred to as Chim, uh, nicknamed C-H-I-M, David Seymour Chim, uh, three of the major photographers of the Spanish Civil War, Together, these roles of film constitute an inestimable record of photographic innovation and war photography, but also of the great political struggle to determine the course of Spanish history and to turn back the global expansion of fascism. So, what's fascinating is that this is a relatively new discovery in photography. So, relatively speaking, uh, it's, it's a, a new idea to be able to go through this. And in fact, uh, ICP, the Museum uh, uh, for ICP, International Center for Photography has this great uh, website all about this. And in fact, there is also on Netflix, if you're interested, uh, a motion picture about the Mexican suitcase. And not just about the Spanish Civil War, but also about the discovery of how we know more about a photographer by understanding the outtakes of what it is that they have done. Uh, so, uh, from these uh, negatives, uh, we find all kinds of photographs that describe uh, not only uh, you know, the, the scene at the time, but also the kind of working situation that the photographers were, were working with and what they were choosing to photograph and the sequence of photographs that they made. So, it's a tremendous resource all of a sudden when these pictures just now uh, arrived just, you know, what, eight or nine years ago. To uh, to now be able to be studied, Uh, so you know the history of photography is constantly being written and rewritten as we learn more about uh, what photographers were up to. Another photographer and one that we've talked about at least a couple of times before, uh, Robert Frank. Uh, Frank was a Swiss-born photographer, uh, photographer of America in the 1950s, and he published a book called The Americans, with an introduction by Jack Kerouac. Uh, So you can kind of see where this fits in. We're going to spend a little bit more time with the intersection of Frank and Kerouac and so forth uh, after the spring break. Uh, But uh, this this book, uh, introduced by somebody who had been doing a lot of thinking and writing about the beat generation and about America in the 1950s, and what was interesting about this book, The Americans, is it challenged people's ideas about what America was. Because here we are, post war, extremely successful, very, very powerful. Uh, our industries are churning out uh, the best products in the world, and so forth and so on. And Robert Frank comes in as a neutral observer from Switzerland, right? And he says, hey, maybe things aren't exactly the way it looks like they are. And he begins to look at what we really are as as a culture. Uh, But what is also interesting, not only in terms of the impact of the, 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 the book, The Americans, and the project of photographs, but it's also interesting in that Frank began to completely break the rules of photography. He took all of the ideas that photography had considered to be uh, sort of sacrosanct rules and turned them on its head. So we had things like, you know, blurred images and not very perfect tone, so forth and so on. And he kind of blew these out of the water uh, with his photographs. So we've already looked at this one, restaurant one, restaurant US1 leaving Columbia, uh, South Carolina, and examined it as a, a symbolic image and talked about it as a symbolic image. And I've led with this picture because since we've already talked about this, it kind of helps you get where we are going with this, right? So where we're going is that Robert Frank is not thinking about the photograph as an actual photograph of actual things. He's thinking about the photograph as in terms of what it can portray symbolically, a tear in the American flag, the superficial nature of what our culture is about. So he's looking at things in a different way. He's looking at our culture as being greedy and acquisitive. He's looking at our culture as being made up of cowboy mentality, even though it's the middle of the 20th century. He's sort of looking at the 1950s and recognizing that they have a lot in common with the 1850s. So he's trying to explore uh, ideas bigger than the subjects of his photographs. The subjects only are sort of a springboard to what is possible to say with the photographs. Another one of these uh, photographers who's uh, been, been very uh, uh, aggressive in their use of the 35 millimeter camera is Lee Friedlander. Friedlander, a photographer working from the 1960s to the present time, is a photographer of the American social landscape uh, and Probably the best way to define what that might mean is that he has an interest in looking at who we are, who we are and what we value and what we're interested in and what our world looks like. And he wants to do it in a kind of almost neutral fashion. Uh, So uh, his pictures oftentimes look to many viewers like snapshots, like not very well considered snapshots like pictures that kind of don't seem to make sense as photographs. And yet what Friedlander is interested in, well, what he says is he says, I photograph because I'm curious about what things are going to look like as a photograph. You're not so sure about what's there. You don't have a lot of expectations. A photograph is not reality. It's really something else. It's a photograph. What he's interested in trying to articulate here is he's interested in trying to explore the idea of how our vision with the human eye is different from the way the camera sees. That the camera and the human eye have different ways of intersecting with the world. So if you're Lee Friedlander, you look at this photograph and you think to yourself, well the camera regards everything in the picture as being equally important. If we consider this photograph and look at the car and look at the dog and the fire hydrant and that car and the stoplight and this building and that building, from a photographic point of view, each one of them has its own sort of weight and its own importance within the picture and that none of them is more important than any other. And what Friedlander says is, that's correct, but what if you were standing there instead of a camera? If you were standing there, whether or not that's your dog changes the way the picture feels and looks. Then if it's your dog, suddenly you're concerned about the dog dashing off into the street or wondering whether you're going to be able to get the dog back onto the leash before it runs across the street Or, you know, are you about to get into your car? Or is that your car over there? Or do you live in this apartment building? Suddenly, as a human standing in that space, you begin to ascribe different senses of importance to each of the subjects in the photograph. But Friedlander says, you know, the photograph has no such sense of importance. In some ways, you almost feel like what Friedlander wants is a robotic camera that just goes out and makes random photographs of what it is that the world looks like and brings that back for later study. So the camera neutralizes what it is that we look at. There's Roy De Carava. De Carava uh, James Hinton, another African-American photographer, said uh, De Carava was the first black man who chose by intent, very important distinction, who chose by intent to document the black and human experience in America. He was the first to devote serious attention to the black aesthetic as it relates to photography and the black experience in America. What's significant about de Carava is that he's not only the first black photographer to do that, but prior to this time, most photographs of black culture had been made from people who were outside of that culture and who had no knowledge of what that culture was about or what it was like or what it felt like or what it looked like so now there's a photographer on the inside looking at what that culture looks like and exploring it uh... as a part of it as an, instead of being sort of an outsider he's also the first black artist to win a Guggenheim we've talked a little bit about the Guggenheim before right the Guggenheim grants that are awarded to major artists uh... and you know they're still being awarded So. Not only the first black photographer to win a Guggenheim, the first black artist of any sort to win a Guggenheim is Roy de Carava in 1952. And his photographs document the struggle, the climb. They document the culture. they document his view of the culture. And what's really interesting and you know, I've, I've made these slides a little bit lighter than, than what the real photographs look like. If you were to see, especially this right-hand photograph on the wall in a gallery somewhere, from across the room, it looks like a black rectangle with no detail in it at all. And as you get up closer to it, you begin to eke out some of the details that he sort of buries in these dark values. And it's really interesting to me that he's using, in many, many ways, all of these dark values to describe that experience of being black in America and living in Harlem and making these photographs. And it's not just about... Uh, the, the sort of human culture of his time, but he explored all the different parts of his culture, including uh, the great uh, jazz culture uh, of, of Harlem in the 1960s. Um, this is uh, John Coltrane on the right. Sebastiao Salgado, who is uh, a photographer who's a journalist, you see his work fairly frequently. He's also a photographer who is exhibited as a fine artist as well as being a journalist photographer. Uh, and uh, you know, I love this quote from him that sort of fits into you know, if, if Cartier Bresson has the camera as an extension of his eye, Smith has the camera as an extension of his conscience. Salgado says, You photograph with all your ideology. Photograph with all your ideology. So it's not just an extension of his conscience. It's an extension of exactly who he is and what he believes. Really a pretty powerful quotation. And what Selgado is particularly interested in is he's interested in cultures that are in transition or cultures that we don't know about. So uh, this uh, photograph is part of a larger group of images called migra- Migrations, uh, where... Uh, he explores how people move in different cultures from one place to another. So, uh, and this is 1999 uh, in, uh, in India, uh, people getting ready to get on or uh, on a train, I guess it is. Uh, and, you know, here we are in uh, Somalia with refugees running uh, with all of their worldly possessions on their back or in the case of the woman on, on her head and you know, powerful photographs of the human struggle. A photograph here that, because it's intended to be a journalistic photograph, requires a little bit of uh, explanation, and also another photograph. So here are these men you can tell are climbing up some sort of a ladder with some burden on their back, and then here is the context of this. They are miners uh, working in Brazil uh, and uh, they climb down to the bottom of the pit. They grab a, uh, a bag, and fill it up with uh, mucky murk that they need to get the ore out of, and their job is to climb up to the top, empty out the bag, take the bag back down, come back up. At the end of the day, they are paid in company scrip, which is only redeemable in the company store, where, of course, everything is uh, inflated in price. So they are slave laborers and uh, really have no way out once they get in uh, to this this, uh, situation. And what's fascinating about these these images is that they're not images of like hundreds of years ago or dozens of years ago. These are things that are happening more or less right now. And it's up to photographers like Salgado who are brave enough to not turn away from things that might force us to turn away from something that we don't want to see and uh, uh, begin to kind of explore how that affects the larger world that we live in. Philip Traeger. Traeger, kind of going from, uh, I don't want to say the sublime to the ridiculous or vice versa, but uh, kind of changing our gears a little bit. Um, Traeger is uh, a, a contemporary photographer who we'll look at in the second half this afternoon as a photographer of architecture. So he started out making architectural photographs with a large format camera, but literally, according to Traeger, woke up one day to decide that what he wanted to do was photograph modern dance. He wanted to photograph the most uh, avant-garde modern dance troupes in America and... In order to do that, he recognized that the large-format camera was way too slow. It couldn't accommodate the situation that he had of wanting to make dance photographs, so he switched to a small camera. But what's interesting is that Traeger had had this long career of using a large-format camera, and the large-format camera was very important to him in terms of the quality of image that it delivered. So he couldn't, in his head, wrap himself around using a 35 millimeter film camera because it didn't deliver the quality. So he sort of goes in between and chooses a medium format camera that produces a negative about three times the size of the 35 millimeter negative and about a third of the size of the four x five negative, sort of halfway in between. And with that, he's able to get the kind of quality that he's used to, but at the same time, be able to have a camera that can capture uh, these amazing images in motion. And what he did with these photographs that was different from a lot of other people who photographed contemporary dance is he took the subjects out of the dance studio, out of the theater, off of the stage, and put them out into the natural world. So put them out in the world and had them do the dances that they would ordinarily do uh, in a stage or in a theater, on a stage or in a theater, and have them do it outside. Um, And using sort of the, the, the... Technical facility and the technical voice that he had achieved with his large format photographs to make these really beautiful, almost ethereal uh, pictures of, uh, of modern dance and modern dancers. So, um, you may recall that I had mentioned him at the beginning of the semester as having produced a, a, a really amazing book of these photographs that's in our library, that is probably one of the most beautifully reproduced books. I've seen that book sitting next to Traeger's platinum prints of these images, and they're almost, they're almost uh, identical to, uh, to one another. Really amazing. So if you get a chance to look at Traeger's dancers uh, in our library. So uh, before we take a break, I want to kind of just give you some, some things to think about, some nuggets to chew on before we move over to talk about large format cameras and large format photographers. And that is just sort of the nature of the photograph in a way. So consider the nature of the picture, the nature of what a photograph is. One person, one critic at some point in, in my uh, study of, of the, the world of, of the arts said that all art is reality distilled through a temperament. All art is reality distilled through a temperament. So we take the real world and we distill it down to some essence through some set of circumstances. In photography, our temperament is light, lens, light-sensitive material, placement of the camera, composition, subject matter choice. And we're taking all of that stuff and we're distilling it through that material and arriving at this form of art. And as we sort of think about that, as we think about that kind of piece of of the puzzle, uh, consider also that no two photographs are the same. It's not possible for two cameras to be in exactly the same position at exactly the same moment. You can get close, but you can't get precisely exactly the same. So no two photographs are precisely the same. We can Sort of imagine two photographs being very close, but like two snowflakes, they're not quite exactly the same. Consider still further that all photographs are time-bound. All photographs are about some aspect of time. And every photograph ever made, as soon as it's made, is about the past. Every single one. As soon as the photograph is made, that photograph is about the past. Photography is tied to a particular time, it's tied to a particular set of circumstances. And while we can speculate about the future, that guy in that Cartier-Bresson photograph is going to get his foot wet, and we can probably sometimes imagine what happened in the past, the only piece of the past that we really know is the piece that is snipped off in that one photograph that we're looking at. And unique to this whole thing, about photography is the way in which photography measures time. The way photography measures time. So if I stand here in front of you and I wave my arm back and forth, you can see my arm, you can see that I have five fingers, that I'm moving those five fingers. You can see that I'm wearing a wristwatch. And you can sort of see all of that. Back and forth, back and forth goes my arm. Now imagine making a photograph of my arm. You have a couple of choices. One is a fast enough shutter speed that stops my arm in motion. The other is some aspect of blur. Whether it's enough blur, long enough shutter speed that my arm disappears, maybe it appears at either end of the arc because it's in that spot long enough on back and forth and back and forth to appear at either end. But the part in the middle disappears altogether with a long enough shutter speed, or it blurs out in some way. Now, what's really interesting is that the photograph, whether it's stopped in motion or blurred in motion, is absolutely and completely different from what you just saw as you watched my arm go back and forth. My arm going back and forth is something you can see, but my arm going back and forth is not something the camera can see, at least not in the way that we see it. So photography has a unique capability, and that is to make the invisible visible. To make the invisible visible. It is capable of doing this magical thing of rendering moving objects in a way that you can't do. And it's purely magical. And it's one of the things that separates photography from every other medium, in that it is capable of doing something that you're not able to do, freezing motion, blurring motion. So as we've looked at these 35-millimeter photographers, think about how the things that we mentioned at the outset, looking at at, why a 35-millimeter camera has value, uh, increased output, increased risk-taking, and a mentality that says, oh, I can always take another one, something that didn't happen in the uh, large-format world, especially in the 19th century. Now that we've talked about small format photographers, let's take a look at large format photographers and see if we can see any kind of stylistic differences or differences in intent or uh, so forth and so on. Uh, so let's ask the same question that we asked at the, at the beginning of the 35 millimeter uh, side of things. Uh, why use a large format camera? Here is a class sign-in sheet with your actual names on it, as opposed to last semester's names. Sorry about that. <laughs> did it make its way all the way around the room and everybody well, looked I at it? Just you just no, kept you it. kept it because it was just like sure? didn't make any sense. Is this the same one? How could that be? What did I just <laughs> What did I just Oh come on. Oh, here it is. 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 But the dates, the dates are wrong. So just, just pretend that we're starting on March 26. And the dates are wrong, and I, I know why that happened. Retiritis. Retiritis. That's it. So periodically, uh, here at any, at any college campus, you get book buyers who come by, because we get all kinds of like, you know complimentary copies of books and so forth and so on, textbooks or books about software or whatever. So they come by looking for books to buy, and this guy comes by just before class, and he, you know he's got a big envelope of books, and you can tell he's one of the book buyers, and he looks into my office where there are no books anymore. <laughs> Bookshelves are completely empty. He said, what happened? I said, I'm leaving. So... Mm-hmm. So... Again, now that we've looked at, now that we've looked at uh, uh, 35 millimeter cameras, let's look at large format photographers and answer the question, why use a large format camera? I mean, if, if 35 millimeter cameras do all of this stuff, why is a large format camera something that somebody would want to use? Well, maybe a bigger negative is a better photo. Bigger negative, higher quality, right? Bigger negative, higher quality. That's one possibility. Anything else?
1: Something about the, um, you can bend so that, like, with architecture photography, it doesn't distort
0: So, one of the interesting things about, uh, you know, a, a 35 millimeter camera, I don't really have anything I can use as a camera here, but I'll, I'll see if I can pretend. Well, I won't even use that. Oh. Yeah, maybe I will So, if I have a standard camera, where the lens is affixed. Here's the lens affixed to the back of the camera. When I turn the camera up to point at a tall object, what happens? Distortion. We sometimes call it keystoning, right? Because the top of the building now looks smaller than the bottom of the building. You've seen this in your photographs, I'm sure, if you've ever tried to take a picture of anything tall. So... (coughs) That's because the lens is affixed to the body of the camera so that as soon as you turn the camera up, you're also turning the lens and the back of the camera up. The large format camera has, first of all, a capability of having its lens, this is the film, this is the lens. It has the capability of having the lens go up relative to a stationary back of the camera. That means the circle of light that's being projected from the lens can be projected in a different place on the piece of film, seeing a higher part of the picture. And if you can't get enough, you can always turn the camera like this. But the cool part about large format cameras is that you can also now retilt the lens and the film back to being perpendicular to the ground or parallel to the subject so that you can get a tremendous displacement between where the lens is and where the film is, seeing a completely different part of the subject and seeing it in correct orientation. I was helping a student earlier today uh, with something that they had shot in the studio. It was a box of candy, I think, and uh, she needed to take the picture and get the the perspective correct so that the box didn't look like it was sort of bigger at the top than at the bottom uh, because the camera was closer to the top of the box than it was to the bottom of the box. Well, with a view camera, she wouldn't have to do that in post-production. She'd do it in production because the camera's parallelism can be changed. You can change the parallelism between the lens and the back of the camera, and you can move the lens relative to the camera. So that's one reason. The other reason, of course, you know, large negatives. Anything else? Anybody other than me use a large format camera? I'm a veteran large format camera user. And I like the fact that it makes me take fewer pictures. It slows me down. I'm not compelled to take 30, 40, 50, 60 pictures at a shot. I take two, one, three. A whole day might be 15. Would it keep you in the studio? It doesn't necessarily keep me in the studio. I mean, most of the photographs that I've made are out in the world. So the large format camera is a device that helps you slow down because it helps you not sort of think, oh, I can just make another one. You have to think carefully about what it is you're putting in the frame. It's big, it's bulky, it's complicated to use. So you have to think about what you're putting in the frame, why you're putting it in the frame, and you're unlikely to make some sort of exposure mistake because you're taking the time to make the one picture that you're going to make the way you want to make it. So large format cameras oftentimes are used even by contemporary photographers to help them slow down, to help them get very large negatives that have better resolving power uh, than... Uh, certainly than the, the smaller format DSLR cameras have, <clears throat> and the ability uh, also to change perspective in the camera. Would you also take, a, say, a 35-millimeter a shot of the same thing that you're using the large camera for? Uh, why? I
1: don't need one.
0: I got, I got my picture. Yeah. No, almost never. I mean, unless I'm shooting black and white film in my large format camera and I want a color picture of the same subject, but in that case, I'd just put a piece of colored film in the camera. Easier, easier, better quality, right? So, all right, so those are some of the answers. Let's see if we can find out some answers from some of these photographers who have used uh, the large format camera. And this is a great place to start. We're not starting back in the 19th century. We're starting now in the 20th century. We've already spent a lot of time with those large-format photographers of the American West and uh, Europe and Asia and so forth. So uh, here is Edward Weston. Uh, When you talk about photography as an art form, when you talk about a photographer who is an artist, Edward Weston is probably one of the best places to start. Uh, The photographs are extremely precise, uh, but that doesn't mean that they aren't also kind of uh, poetic and and oftentimes quite romantic. Weston is also the guy who came up with... He's going to (laughs) dance. Weston's also the guy who came up with this idea of pre-visualization. Well, he probably didn't come up with the idea. Photographers had probably done this for a long time, but he was the first person to kind of think it through and say that what his goal was was before he pressed the shutter release button that he'd have an image in his head about what the final black-and-white print would look like, pre-visualizing the, the sort of way the photograph was going to look. What's interesting is that Weston started out his career as a photographer who was photographing in the pictorialist strategy, the way in which many photographers photographed uh, in the 1920s or uh, uh, the 1910s, and he was photographing with soft-focus lenses, photographing that pictorialist style, and uh, at some point he recognized that wasn't really what he was interested in. So about 1920, he reexamined this early soft-focus work, and he found it lacking, and he saw two different directions in his work. One was abstraction, and the other was realism. And in between those two, he sort of looked at it and felt that realism was the strongest for him of what it was that he wanted to photograph. He wrote, the camera should be used for the recording of life, for rendering the very thing itself. Whether it be polished steel or palpitating flesh, I shall let no chance pass to record interesting abstraction, but I feel definite, in my belief, that the true approach to photography is through realism. And so he took all of his glass plate negatives that he'd made soft focus photographs on, he scraped the emulsions off of them and used them as windows in his house, (laughs) seeing more clearly, getting rid of his soft focus past and wanting to explore this precise nature of what he felt photography really could do. He photographed most often with an 8 by 10 inch camera and most of the time made small 8 by 10 inch contact prints, not wanting to sort of spoil the image by enlarging it and diminishing its optical qualities. Even though the lens that he liked the best, it only cost him a, about 5 or $6, it had a really amazing capability in that it was able to stop down to f256, Very, very small aperture. There was a problem with f256 in that once you get a really tiny aperture like that, you get all kinds of diffusion, diffraction effects that soften the picture a little bit. But if you contact print the negative, you don't really notice it. What he did get was tremendous depth of field. So amazing depth of field even on close-ups of subject matter. Here's Weston's pepper number 30. Pepper number 30. There's a lot of stuff that, that, that is interesting about pepper number 30. One is its, its obvious sensuality, that it has a kind of physicality that you wouldn't expect a, a vegetable to have. Uh, here is uh, the other part, though. It is titled Pepper Number 30, which means that as one of Weston's masterworks, there were 29 that went before that weren't quite as good. And that's really important for us to remember that one of the great masters of American photography of all time took 29 exposures, 29 tries, to get to the one that was the most successful. So, you know, we keep trying, right? He kept trying. Pepper number 30 is often seen side by side with an image called Head Down Nude, and uh, you can see why they have a real synergy between the two of them. What's interesting to me, what's always been interesting to me is, for me anyway, how much more sensual the pepper is than the human body. There's something about it that kind of feels more uh, more ripe somehow. So Weston was the ultimate sort of American artist-photographer. The photographs are often seen as sculpture. He worked through almost all of the themes that any photographer might work through, landscape, portraits, nudes, still life, everything you could possibly imagine. Uh, and certainly as one of the most important photographers uh, of the 20th century and certainly I think one of the most important photographers in the history of the medium, a suggestion that I always make to students, uh, Weston wrote every morning, He'd get up really early, He'd drink a really, really strong cup of coffee and he'd sit down and he'd write in what he called his day books. And he'd sit and write for a little while about his experiences in life as a photographer uh, with all of the many uh, women that he'd been involved with in, in his life, and there were many of them. And he'd write about them. But mostly he wrote about the experience of being a photographer and the struggle of being a photographer and trying to reconcile the world of the creative photographer against the necessity for the photographer to make a living. Um, and he wrote all that down and it's all been published in Edward Weston's day books. We have them in our library. Uh, we have several different, it's, they've been issued in a, probably a dozen different formats, some with pictures, some without pictures. Um, in my estimation, they're one of the most important things that any photographer can ever read because he struggled with the same things that you and I struggle with. All of those ideas about how to maintain a creative life, how to maintain the creative spark, how do you reconcile the difference between the things you need to do as a photographer uh, in terms of your internal self and the things you want to do and the things that you're told to do. So uh, really interesting and certainly well worth taking a look at, Edward Weston's Day Books. That would be a great spring break read. Um, And they're, they're pretty zippy too because he's got a lot of social interaction of all of his friends and so forth, including one of his friends, Ansel Adams. Adams, the definitive pictorial landscape photographer. His technique was incredibly precise, and he used that precision of technique and the way he looked at the world to do two things that are really important. He saw wilderness as a place for redemption, and... In doing so, he recognized the importance of preserving that wilderness. And he used his photography, at least in part, to help preserve the wilderness that he felt was so incredibly important. So Adams, I always like to talk about Adams in a couple of different ways. One is this guy who was an amazing photographer tremendous photographic technician and a great photographic teacher because he not only taught dozens of workshops, but he also taught uh, through the idea of books and writing a bunch of books about the technique of photography and also about the vision of photography simultaneously. The camera, the lens, the negative, the print are all books that many, many, many photographers learned the craft photography from. So Adams has that contribution to the world of photography. He also has the contribution of images that uh, are tremendously beautiful, tonally rich, and incredibly vibrant. If you've ever seen an Ansel Adams photograph uh, printed by him live, they're things to behold. They're really quite something to look at. Uh, Technical precision was one of his hallmarks. Uh, And his technical ability, again, was sort of recounted in these books. Uh, But another thing that's really interesting is that at some point in the middle of the 1970s, Ansel Adams said, I'm not going to make any more prints of my photographs. And almost single-handedly and almost instantaneously, Photography's value as a commodity, as a tradable, artistic commodity, shot skyward. And it was really by this photograph, Moonrise at Hernandez, New Mexico, which was one of his most popular photographs, certainly one of his most beautiful photographs. And it began trading at auction. One week it was selling for $500, the next week $5,000, the next week $20,000, the next week $45,000. And photography's prices in the marketplace shot up almost exclusively because Adams said, I'm not going to print any more photographs. So the world of the print that was existing was all that was anymore, and suddenly now we knew that the market was finite. There weren't going to be any more Moonrise prints made, so suddenly the prints that were there became more valuable. What was interesting is that that raised the stakes for all of the rest of us. Everybody else could begin charging more for photography, whereas photography had always been sort of the poor stepchild in the art world in terms of pricing. Many people know Adams best through these uh, large sort of landscape images. They're very big, expansive landscapes. But some of my favorite Adams photographs have been these small uh, sort of, uh, you know, if the other pictures are big orchestral landscapes, these are little piano sonatas, uh, little tiny sort of glimpses into the world of the way, uh, the, the, way the world looks uh, that are not so grand and not so, so, uh, so huge but more intimate and, uh, and smaller. I always say that Ansel Adams is to photography as Kleenex is to facial tissue. Because he's one of those household names. You know, if you have at some point made a black and white photograph of the natural world, especially a tree or a rock, somebody will have said to you, oh, that you're going to be the next Ansel Adams. Because he is one of those household names. He's probably one of the few photographers who uh, continuously pops up when I ask, students in this class, or when I ask uh, students in an 1100 class, you know, what photographer is one that you like, they often come up with Ansel Adams, because he's a well-known commodity. How did that happen? How did Ansel Adams become really, really famous? Here's one reason. His image was licensed to Hills Brothers to put on a coffee can in 1968. (laughs) one of the reasons that Adams became famous is not just because he is a great photographer, and he was a great photographer, but because he really worked at trying to become famous. It's only one part of the deal to get to the point where you're making really significant photographs. The other part of the deal is to figure out how to let everybody else know that you're making significant photographs. So one of the things that he did is licensed his image uh, to one of his images to... Uh, Hills Brothers for their coffee can. Not everybody thought this was the greatest idea. Uh, As Adams wrote in his autobiography, I know that Imogen Cunningham disapproved of the Hills Brothers coffee can that came out about 1968. Uh, She made that very clear. She sent me one of the cans with a marijuana plant growing in it as, you know, Matt Adams was going to pot, right? It's also significant that Imogen had a marijuana plant Sitting around. So here's Ansel Adams on the cover of Time magazine. On the cover of Time magazine. How many photographers do we know who are on the cover of Time magazine? The master eye, you know, toward the end of his life. So he's an an important photographer who became important by helping his own role through being an important photographer. He really just sort of worked at it over and over and over and over again. He's the only photographer I can ever remember seeing on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. He's the only photographer I can ever remember being in an ad for Nissan trucks. Some of you may remember the ad campaign that they had that, you know, oh, no, it was Toyota. Oh, Toyota, and somebody would jump up and click their heels together you saw at some point in the 19, late 1970s an ad of Ansel Adams jumping up and clicking his heels together and saying, oh, Toyota, as his pickup truck, is parked in front of some grand Yosemite landscape. So, And it's not because he needed the money. It was because he needed to continue to escalate his role as an important photographer. And, of course, it's also important to note that not only was he famous because he was sort of marketing himself, but he was also famous for making sure that U.S. governmental policy understood the importance of preserving wilderness. And he met with presidents. He met with secretaries of the interior. He was not a giant fan of former Secretary of the Interior, James Watt, who wanted to drill for oil in all of the national parks. Um, And Adams was very outspoken about that. He was a strong proponent of the Sierra Club, and in fact there is uh, in Yosemite now a mountain, actually no, it's in the Sierra Nevada, a mountain named Mount Ansel Adams because of his important uh, contributions to preservation of, of natural world phenomena. So Ansel Adams was a very, very gifted piano player. Some said perhaps the best pianist of his time He gave up piano once he saw the photographs of this guy, Paul Strand. Paul Strand, a major force of photographic modernism. You'll remember that Stieglitz showed Strand in his gallery. Tremendous influence to Ansel Adams. And we've looked at Strand at least a couple of times throughout our time together. Strand wrote, The photographer's problem is to see clearly the limitations and at the same time the potential qualities of his medium, for it is precisely here that honesty, no less than intensity of vision, is the prerequisite of a living expression. This means a real respect for the thing in front of him expressed in terms of light and dark through a range of almost infinite tonal values. The fullest realization of this is accomplished without tricks of process or manipulation, but through the use of straight photographic methods." So he photographed people, he photographed the landscape, he photographed structure, he photographed the way in which people lived in the world, sort of looking in a lyrical way uh, at uh, sort of trying to find the feeling of people in their environments. Another large format photographer, Irving Penn. Penn, a photographer who crossed the boundaries, sort of straddling the river between commercial photography and fine art photography. And the studio for Penn was the neutralizing factor. The studio was the thing that allowed him to explore the differences between different types of people and different types of ideas while simultaneously Uh, in maintaining a kind of a neutral environment. So whether it was the supermodels of the day or the superbands of the day, the studio became a neutralizing space, light almost always coming from the same direction, above and from one side or the other. Backdrops being always extremely neutral, removing these people from their environments, Again, whether it is one of the more important models of the day for a fashion spread or whether it is cultures that he explored bringing along a portable studio to photograph them and being able to have that neutral environment along with him. Still-life subjects the same, whether the still-life subjects were still-life images that were made for food magazines or whether they were photographs that he was interested in making for himself, like the cigarette butt series, where he'd go out in the street and find uh, sort of uh, dilapidated cigarette butts and make these extremely accurate pictures of whatever it is that they looked like. Flowers on a light light table. It's also interesting to note that that same sort of precision transferred to advertising. And for many, many years, uh, Clinique Cosmetics used uh, Irving Penn as their primary photographer, photographing not the effect of the cosmetic, but the cosmetic itself, the object, creating a sort of reverence around the object with the precision that he had become known for. Another large format photographer, one of my favorite names in photography, Minor White, the musician being... Major chord. Close ties with Weston and Adams caused him to be very interested in the way uh, photography could be practiced in terms of its technical qualities. Large format cameras, very pristine prints, but he also brought together with those ideas his own ideas of the spiritual sort of a Zen idea of photography. He saw photography as a religion. Not like as if it was a religion. Photography was for him a religion. He practiced it as a religion. I photograph things for what they are and for what else they are. Probably one of his most famous quotations. For Minor White... The photograph wasn't complete until it reached a complete circle. Him finding the subject was the first part, making the photograph, carefully developing the negative, carefully making the print, finishing the print, matting the print. But the photograph wasn't complete until it had a viewer, because without a viewer, there was no circle of minor white photographing this thing that could then be shared with others. As Weston had, White obliterated clues as to size and scale, atmosphere, locale, oftentimes giving the images a kind of enigmatic quality. And like Adams, Minor White was a very influential teacher of photography, teaching hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who over a number of years came to the the kind of commune-like place that Minor White maintained in upstate New York where people would come, spend a week, a year, a month, a few days, and study with Minor White, show him their photographs, work on the farm, do all of the stuff that, that Minor White was doing every day. And then Joel Meyerowitz, Meyerowitz, a very important contemporary photographer working in color. Working in color, but working in color with the large format camera, the 8 by 10 inch camera. (laughs) What's really interesting about Meyerowitz's camera is how ever-present it is. God bless you. Thank you. However-present it is, it sort of seems like it's almost like somebody who has a kind of you know, point-and-shoot style camera with them and is always there and he's always making photographs and yet the pictures have this pristine and precise quality of the 8 by 10 inch camera. Joel Meyerowitz has said, clarity, in a sense, is purity. To try to single out one wave on the ocean and try to understand something about that wave is a very pure act. But to just stand there and see the sea moving wouldn't produce that keen edge of understanding. The large format view camera, by the very nature of its power of description, has convinced me that you can single out the tiniest of notations along the way and make a photograph. The Power of description, something you frequently hear people who use view cameras talk about. One of the questions that always comes up is, are there photographers still using view cameras? Of course there are. Lots and lots and lots of them. Can you make a digital photograph with a view camera? Yeah, sort of. You know, you can if you have deep pockets and a lot of time, a lot of energy to carry that stuff around, and computer to run the back for the camera. There are some that don't need a computer to run the back, but most every photographer shooting with large-format cameras today is shooting film. Philip Traeger. This is the same guy we saw making photographs of modern dance, and I've actually included him today because he sort of exemplifies some of the rationale that goes in between these two types of formats of cameras. So for his architectural work, because of his desire to record detail and exactitude or with exactitude, and because of his need to control perspective, he uses the large format camera. For the photographs of dancers, people who are moving very rapidly, that he wants to be able to photograph uh, very quickly, he's using a smaller format camera. (coughs) Traeger's pictures are very subtle, oftentimes uh, filled with really interesting and complex light. are sort of not the standard architectural fair that show the building in the heroic pose, but rather show the way the building was built, show the way the building is structured, how it's used. And then lastly, this guy, Nicholas Nixon. Nick Nixon uses an 8x10 camera, but he uses it like somebody who might shoot with a Leica or a 35mm camera because the images are of the moment and yet the 8x10-inch contact prints have the tremendous detail that come from his 8x10-inch negative camera. So they're kind of crazy pictures because they kind of bridge the gap between these two technologies. So if the suggestion is that the small format camera is really good for stuff in motion and the large format camera is really good for stuff that's moving, that's not moving, Nixon kind of takes that whole thing and turns it on its head and takes the idea that a large format camera can't make pictures about a moment and makes pictures that are completely about a moment. So there you have it. Small cameras or slow cameras and straight pictures, fast cameras and fast pictures, and looking at the way in which photographers choose their tools. There's that old adage, <clears throat> I think it's the psychologist Abraham Maslow that said you know, that if the only tool you have in your toolbox is a hammer, you tend to think of everything as a nail so most photographers have a variety of tools in their arsenal and they'll pick and choose those tools as needed uh, as they uh, go through the process of of making photographs